0: This series of messages is hopefully calling you out of any kind of rut, uh, any kind of stall that you may be in, um, in your faith, and calling you up to bigger faith, gold medal faith, if you will. Uh, Welcome uh, to Grace Point, if uh, you're just now uh, joining us in this series. And as we've been kind of paralleling this along with the, uh, the, the Olympics that have been going on uh, in Brazil, and if you didn't notice, uh, America, I think, won in the medal count by a little bit, uh, in fact, uh, by a lot. Uh, we, were, we were substantially ahead now. We had, had 550 athletes there, too, so we should have won. Uh, a whole lot. Not saying that arrogantly, because I think some of the greatest stories is not in the quantity of, of, of medals that necessarily got, but some of the stories... Fiji got its uh, little small, tiny island. Fiji got its first medal ever uh, in rugby. So it's pretty cool to hear those stories and to dive into the stories behind the stories um, and behind the people. And these medals mean something. They, they mean honor. They mean prestige. And you go back to some of these countries, these people will be national heroes uh, across America. You know, it's, a, it's kind of a little bit more nonchalant. I mean, it's a big deal, no doubt, big deal. Uh, until the next Olympics, and somebody tops your record that you just set, you know, and we kind of move on, and we kind of forget the the athletes from one Olympics to the next. But in some of these places, it's a big deal. Uh, it's a national honor. It's a it's a pride. Take a, for example, Joe Jacoby, who um, won won a gold medal in uh, 1992. Uh, I mean, I, I'm not down and not jumping on Joe if you know Joe, but uh, he leaves his gold medal in the back seat of his car in a Atlanta parking lot, in a restaurant parking lot, in a in, in a backpack, and it's stolen, all right? Now, who leaves a gold medal piece from the Olympics in Atlanta, mind you, okay? Nothing against Atlantans if you're an Atlanta person in here, but I wouldn't do that in Northwest Arkansas, all right? But uh, but they leave it in the backseat of their car. It, it's stolen. This is back in June, and in July, it's, uh, it's, it's, re- it's discovered, and where it is discovered by like a four-year-old girl walking down the street with her dad is in a, in, in a, in a trash heap, Uh, on the side of the road. A gold medal, can you imagine? You think about that, and just let that be a metaphor for the many things that we collect, the many things that we strive for, the many things that we value, the the many medals that we accomplish, and sometimes they just end up in a trash heap. Sometimes they mean nothing, really, in in, in long-term significant value. That's not what we're talking about. There's some comparisons, and there are some contrasts. When you talk about the Olympics... Uh, in, in that first century Olympics and even in modern Olympics and in the, the faith Olympics that we've kind of been challenging you to rise up to, all of us to rise up to and, and to live in that gold medal faith. Paul made it very clear in 1 Corinthians. He said, we do not run after a crown that, uh, that will perish, but one that will last forever. So we're not talking about something that's going to be found in a trash heap on the side of the road. We're talking about something that's going to last forever. And so what we're running for is eternal and so, again, comparison, contrast as, as as we go through a lot of this. And I think there's some people who really get that, and they understand that. I think one of my people, probably the most significant or most noted missionary in the 20th century, is Jim Elliott. Sixty years ago in January of this year, uh, marked the date that he, Nate Saint, and I think two other... Uh, uh, missionary pilots flew onto a little beach had in, uh, on, an, uh, uh, excuse me, on a little riverbed, and uh, they, they flew down there among the Aka Indians, and they actually found themselves murdered uh, for going in there trying to share their faith. But uh, Jim Elliott was noted as saying before his passing, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He already looked at his life when he knew he was going to a, a violent tribal people in Ecuador and he already counted his life. He said, listen, my life is fading and my life is not going to last forever. This flesh and blood doesn't go on forever. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep. I cannot make my life go any longer to gain what he cannot lose. He knew something about that, that Aki Indian tribe, that, that tribe that was lost and had never heard of Jesus and had, had, had literally killed everybody else that had ever come in to share the gospel with them. He knew that there was violence out there, but he also knew that if he could win one, if there could be two, if there could be a family that would make an eternal difference, he knew the eternal value of things. And in this series, we're challenging you to really assess what is the gold of your faith? What is the gold of your life? What are you really valuing? And I think Jesus made this quite clear in his life and in his statements and in his words. He, his most famous message was what we, what we call the Sermon on the Mount. And he said this in Matthew chapter 6, verse 20. He says, lay up for yourself treasures in heaven. Now, just stop right there. You don't even have to know the context of it. You don't even have to know anything else about whatever else he's saying. But that phrase alone, "lay up for yourself treasures in heaven," should cause anybody in their spiritual mind something to trigger in here that would say, "I need to have an, a 501, or excuse me, a 401k, whatever that thing is called. Uh, you know, I need to have a retirement plan." I need to have something that is storing up, something that's going to a place that the market will not shift under, that nobody's going to break in and steal, that it will not fade over time, that it will not depreciate because the cost of living goes up. I need to invest in eternity. I think you take what Jim Elliott did in his heart and his mind. I think you take what Paul and how he lived out his life and the many other disciples that we read from and talked about last week. I think they understood something, that giving our life here on earth for a cause of Christ is a greater noble calling than just living for ourselves. And that's really gold medal faith. And that's really what he's calling us to live about. And so if we're going to figure out this whole account in heaven thing, Let's just dwell on that one for a moment. I want to put a challenge out there. I put it out in the first gathering, I put it out in this gathering. Here's the challenge. And I want anybody to prove to me from Scripture that I'm wrong on this. And if if I'm wrong, I, I won't call you out. I will actually stand up and say, I was wrong. You show me in Scripture where I'm wrong on this. I can't find any other transferable asset on this earth. Noun, person, place, or thing. I can't think of any other object on this planet that is transferable from this life to that life. Outside of people. Here's a life principle for you just to chew on. The only transferable asset from this life to eternal life is people. People. The people that you're sitting around, the people that you live in the same house with, the people that you gave birth to, the people that you brought into this world, the people that brought you into this world, the people that you work with, the people that you can't stand. Those people... They're the only transferable asset that I can think of that is on this planet that can transfer from this life into the next life. Take your Bibles. We find the book of Philippians, little small book about midway through the New Testament. You'll find the book of Philippians and we're going to be in chapter three in a moment chapter 3 and chapter 4. Let me tell you about Philippi while you're turning to that because Paul is writing this church at Philippi from a prison cell. It's one of his prison letters or epistles as they call them. So he's writing it to this little 10 mile off the coast of of the Aegean Sea in the northern part, kind of sandwiched in between Turkey and Greece on one side and and then kind of Macedonia area. And that's where Philippi is. It's a major thoroughfare. It's a major town in the Greco-Roman world. It's actually got its name from Alexander the Great's father. All right? So that's how significant this... uh, This uh, community is. But in 51 A.D., Paul makes his second missionary journey. He ends up in Philippi. And he, along with Silas, helped plant a church there in Philippi. That's why church planting is so significant in our lives, because it was significant in the New, New Testament life. And there's something that happens when you plant a church. There's this tremendous amount of emotional, spiritual marriage bonding that happens. And it's exactly what happens with Paul. He gets really connected to this church of Philippi. You can read in chapter 1, verse 8, and you'll see that I have deep affections for you. You'll read in chapter 1, verse 4, I'm constantly thinking of you in remembrance of you. So you you see this great love and affection that he has for Philippi. And then you come over to chapter 4 and chapter 3, we're going to see the same thing again. This connection is real, it's deep. He's kind of the daddy of the church, if you will. He kind of helped bring this church into existence. He kind of helped birth this church. Now, anytime God starts to move in your life, your home, your marriage, your job, your whatever, your, our church, anytime God starts to move, Satan will always counter-move. He'll always counter-move. He'll always undercut it. He'll always do something. And in this situation, let me just focus on Philippi. What happens is some libertarians begin to sweep into the church. Now, Paul's not there to kind of say, hey, you're, you're, you're wrong. You're, what you're saying is wrong. He's call them out. He has to do that from Rome a long way cross land, cross sea, and without email or fax or texting or anything like that. He has to call them out from a long ways off because he got the message that things aren't so good in Philippi that these libertarians came in they started undercutting Christ. Start saying, Hey, you could just you don't have to believe that way. You, you know, you could just do it your own way. And started filling their minds with this different kind of belief. Paul raises up this big red flag. He says, No, stop it. Stop it. These are my children. These are special people to me. And I want to read to you from the message because it really gives you the emotional side of it. From the message, chapter three, verse 17 to 19, it kind of gives you the context. Listen to this. Stick with me, friends. He calls them brothers. He calls them friends here. And the message is a paraphrase. It's not a translation, but it does get, get the message across. Keep track of those you see running this same course. I love how Eugene Peterson brings in the metaphor of the run that Paul does so many times. Headed in the same uh, for this same goal. There are many out there who are taking other paths, choosing other goals, trying to get you to go along with them. I've warned you of them many times. Sadly, I'm having to do it again. All they want is easy street. All they want is easy street. They hate the cross of Christ, but easy street is a dead-end street. Those who live their uh, those who uh, live their, uh, their make their bellies their gods and belches their praises. Kind of gross, I know. Uh, all these all they can think about are their appetites. I just want to focus on that last phrase. Or that one of those phrases in, there in the middle. Easy Street. We've talked about a, a kind of level of faith out there that's kind of sentiment without substance. You've heard me talk about notional Christians in here. You, now you hear Paul talking about, in a, in a paraphrase version, you, you hear Paul talking about easy street Christians. Listen, this whole series, if you had not figured it out yet, is calling us out of the rut, out of the norm, out of the lazy kind of form of Christianity and calling us off of easy street. Listen, if you're still living on easy street in your faith, you need to move, change zip codes, get a new home live on the edge. The the faith that Paul lives, the faith that we're called to live is not an easy street kind of faith. It is a demanding faith. It is a faith that that, that requires deep sacrifices. It's a faith that requires commitment. Easy street faith looks out for me, myself, and I. And as long as I'm warm, happy, and fed in my faith, I'm okay. As long as I like the church today, it's okay. As long as I like the message today, as long as I like the music today, as long as I like my small group, I'm okay. But don't ask me to change my life. Don't ask me to sacrifice. Don't ask me to go to the other side of the world. Don't ask me to serve one, worship one. Don't ask me because that's not me. Mike, that may be your faith because you're a preacher. That may be other other people, it's not me. Listen, that's easy street faith. Gold medal faith takes deep sacrifices and commitment. And we learn to value the eternal destiny of every soul. We've talked about different qualities of this gold medal faith. Let me just tell you another one today. We learn to value the eternal destiny of every single soul. The ones we know and the ones we don't know. The ones, the ones that are named, the ones that are not named. The ones that we go to and we have passports to go to, that we have to get security clears to go. You know, those people, even those people we care about. So let's take our Bibles and now let's begin reading. I want us to see how Paul kind of turns the tide. And we're going to come back to the word Stephanos here as we read this. But let's read chapter 3, verse 20 and pick up where, in the translation. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await the Savior of the Lord Jesus Christ who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. I want to reemphasize the first word in this. He's showing a contrast here. There's this kind of easy street faith, but that's not the faith. But... You've been called to this other kind of faith. We're going to break that other kind of faith down because now we go to verse 1 of chapter 4. Therefore, because of everything else I've said, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and crown. There's the word Stephanos. We've been studying it for now, what, four weeks? 18 times in the New Testament, the word Stephanos. Here it is again. My crown. It's the only time in Scriptures that people... So it actually gives an idea that a person, somebody is the crown. We've talked about the crown of righteousness. We've talked about the crown of life. We've talked about the incorruptible crown. We've talked about all the different crowns. But this time he actually refers to the crown as if it's a person. You are the crown. You are my joy and my crown. Stand firm thus in the Lord my beloved. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 19 is the other time that Paul uses the idea of the people being crowned. He says, after all, what gives you hope and joy and what will be our proud reward and crown as we stand before the Lord Jesus Christ? What's going to be our crown? What's going to be our crown? What's the last three words of that on that screen on the Sky Bible, if you will? All right, what is it? It is you. It's a person. The only transferable asset on this planet that I can find in Scripture are people. And what happens is Paul has invested in Thessalonica. Paul has invested in Philippi. Paul has planted churches in these places. He's brought people to faith in Christ. And it is the people that are the most valuable part of this whole paradigm here. And I am calling you out. Listen, I can remember. The very first person that I ever prayed with, and I didn't know anything. I was so wet behind the ears, about 16 years of age. And I remember it was my Uncle Lester, who was a quadriplegic in a wheelchair, just suffered a stroke. But he was ready to give his life to following Jesus. And I can remember kneeling by him while he sat in his wheelchair and praying with him. I can remember going to Sin Kwakwani in Zambia. You won't even find it on a map. It's nowhere on the map. It's a little village in the heart of the southern province of Zambia. And they said, I don't know this, they told me I was the very first white man to ever go into this village. And I go into this village and I can remember going from Genesis to Exodus to all the way through the Old Testament. And I remember going to Isaiah and I can remember telling the stories about how God's going to provide a lamb, how God's going to provide a lamb, how God's going to provide a lamb. And I can remember this little old lady, she was about as... White as she was tall. And, uh, and I can remember her standing up and she had a bone in her nose because in Tonga land, that's beauty, beauty marks there, okay? Here we just pierce it and go on with it. But, but it's a beauty mark there. And so, and they have this bone. And she stands up and she says this to me. She says, I don't have a lamb. I don't have a lamb. You know what my very next story was to tell her? It was when John the Baptist saw Jesus walking. He says, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And I told her about it. And I can remember that lady praying to receive Christ in seeing Kwakwani. She's gone to be with Jesus now. I can remember that. I can remember Alex. Alex, you're in this room right now. I call you Alex. You know who you are. And I can remember the journey that you went on to your faith and how the people around you right now and how your family members prayed for you that you too would receive Christ. You see, there's something that happens. It's like, it's, like, it's like Paul said here, you become my crown, you become my joy, you become what I am so excited about taking and going with you to heaven is because I was a part of the process of helping you become a follower of Christ. I was only part of the process. God lays so many things. God does so many things. Sometimes we're watering. Sometimes we're plowing. Sometimes we're picking weeds. Sometimes we're, we're harvesting. But the cr- incredible thing is, is if we are going to learn to see life through a perspective of a gold medal faith, we're going to have to learn to see life differently. We can't live easy street faith. Okay, can't do it. Can't do it. Got to get that off, off the plate. We're going to have to get off of easy street for some, it's going to be getting on hardship Because I'm going to say this, I'm not, this whole message about sharing our faith and bringing people to faith in Christ, I know it's oh so overwhelming for some. And I just know from, from just from studying statistics and that most of the people in this room have never led someone to Christ. And I'm not trying to make you feel bad. I'm trying to call you up off of Easy Street and to just start the process. Just start telling your story but how are you going to do it? I think there's a couple of things that we've got to do. Some paradigm shifting in our in our life. One is we've got to see the big picture. We have got to see the big picture. The problem is is that the more the longer you become a the longer you're a follower of Christ the longer you're in the faith it doesn't mean that you have more and more uh, uh, Christians that, uh, excuse me more and more lost people in your life actually you have less. Studies have found that the average people in, in the church they'll have about seven to nine friends that are outside the church. Okay. But the longer you become a Christian, the longer you're in the church, the more you're in an established church, the fewer, and you can read that for yourself, the fewer and fewer Christians or, uh, excuse me, unchurched people you'll have in your life. Because what do we do? We come out from the world. We get into our holy huddles. We listen to focus on the family, on how to raise our children. We read novels like Left Behind. We listen to Christian radio. We go to our home Bible studies. We homeschool our kids. We do all this kind of stuff because the world is so bad. We've got to get the realization that we're called to this world, not because we live in this world, but because we are a part of this world, but we're a citizen somewhere else, and we're ambassadors here. We're on mission here to get the message to the ends of the earth, yes, and to get the message across the street. C.T. Studd said it like this, Some people like to live within the sound of chapel bells, but I want to live a few yards from hell. We need a few people ready to move in with people far from God move closer to them, get in their lives, be a part of their lives, share with their lives, become one with them in realizing that, we, that we're called to that. Look at verse 20 again. But we, our citizenship is in heaven. That's great. doesn't mean that we should start focusing on heaven, start living as if we're moving to heaven tomorrow. We need to realize that we are here on a mission, not just to make ourselves fat and sassy in fat, and, and, and at home, we're here to live on mission. In fact, he calls us in Colossians, set your mind on the things above, not on the things on the earth. That doesn't mean that we only think about heavenly things. It means that we think about life through the perspective of heaven. What does a man profit if he gains the whole world but loses his own soul? See, when we start valuing the soul of the person, because we realize that every, listen, look, 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 That the back of the head of the person in front of you right now has a soul that will live forever in heaven or hell ought to wake you up. Because if you gain the whole world and that person in front of you, beside you, doesn't have Christ, it's not a good thing. It's not an easy answer. We become so consumed with ourselves. We've got to realize we're not of this world, but we're in this world. And as long as we're in this world, we need to be a light to this world. I don't know, again, how many of y'all have been watching the Olympics, but I've just been uh, in, enjoying it. It's over today, closing ceremonies, all that kind of stuff. But I've enjoyed the track and field the past couple of weeks and the great representation from the University of Arkansas. Have y'all noticed that? All right, go hogs. All right, we pick three. Yeah, And yeah, I'm sorry last week that you had to endure during the announcements, Randy, talking about the Sooners. That will never happen again. <laughs> uh, and I, 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 I did listen. I did not hear one Oklahoma Sooner announced. From the University of Ark, from the University of Oklahoma, I heard all kinds of people. From Omar, this guy who won the 100 meter hurdles, uh, he was from the University of Arkansas. Great story when you when you when you dive into him, a man of the faith as as well. But why is he wearing Jamaica? Why didn't he wear in America? I want the guy wearing, yeah, you know, I want him wearing America. He lives in America. He lives in the University of Arkansas. And so many of them live and train in America. Why don't they represent America? Well, because he's from Jamaica. He just represents. He just lives here, but he represents his country back there. I even looked it up. How can you represent a country? In, in the Rule Forty One in the Olympics, is any competitor of the Olympic Games must be a natural, must be a, a, a national of that country. Listen, my friends, we may live here right now, but we wear the banner, we wear the jersey of heaven. We need to represent it while we're here. We're going to have to understand it and see life through a bigger picture. We need to see people. We need to see people differently too. We need to see them as the precious prize of God. I don't know about you, but how many of y'all have thought this? I want to see you raise a hand because I don't want to be the only one to confess it. That you've ever thought life would be great if it wasn't for people. Raise your hand. All right. The rest of you are lying. And you can confess it later. I say it all the time. Life would be great if it weren't for the people. we got to live with the people. See, the thing is, is, it's going to have to be a switch in myself. It's going to have to be Christ sanctifying my mind. It's going to have to be Christ changing me because I want to have the perspective that Paul has. As he had over the church of Philippi, of the people of Philippi. These are people. Therefore, ch- chapter one, uh, chapter, uh, verse one, chapter four. Therefore, my brothers, my brothers, hear the affection in that. Whom I love, hear the affection in that. Who I long, hear the affection in that. Who I, my joy, hear the affection in that. My crown, stand firm, thus in the Lord. My beloved. I mean, there's all kinds of love that he had for people. And it's really hard to love people unless you learn to see them in the big picture. Hey, I'm just here for a while. I'm going there, and I want to take you with me. I want you to experience eternity with me in heaven. And whenever you start seeing people in your world and your family members through the lens that they're eternal beings, and I can help bring them to faith in Christ. And I can help bring them into eternity. It will change everything. It's going to require of me that I'm going to have a love and affection for others. There's going to have to be a love and affection that's going to happen for me. You see this with Paul. Do you have a love and affection for others? You see, he says, I love and I long. I love and I long. Now, I think we can all identify with this phrase. I love and and I long. Now, don't, don't raise your hand on this one. That would be a bad confession. How many of y'all have ever loved your kids, but you haven't longed for your kids to be in the same room with you? How many of y'all have ever, lo- definitely don't raise your hand on this one. How many of you lo- loved your spouse, but you did not long to be in the same room with them? All right. You may not be, you may be setting them right now, and you had such a fight in the car that you don't even want to be in the same church with them right now. How many of you ever told your kids to go out and play in the street or something like that? You know, there are just times that we don't love and long. Paul said, I love and I long. Now, remember the day when you loved and longed to be with your spouse. Remember the day when you loved and longed to be with your children. See, whenever you bring somebody from death into life, from lost into saved, when you bring somebody in from once born to twice born, when you are there in that birthing process and rebirthing process, there is something that happens in you that you care deeply for them and you love and you long to be with them. And you are so elated of their faith journey and their walk with Christ. But he also said, my joy do you have joy for others? Do you have a joy for others? He said, and you can underscore those words, I love and I long in my joy. You know, 1 Thessalonians, I want to go back there and read that again because it's the two times, it's the only two times in the New Testament. Again, there's 18 times that he uses the word Stephanos. Of those 18 times, two of those times, he uses it referring to the object of the crown being a person. He does it here in Philippians chapter 4, verse 1, and he does it here in 1 Thessalonians. It says, For who is our hope, joy, our crown, or crown of right of exaltation? It is not, is it not even you, person, individual, in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ and at his coming? For you, again, makes it very personal, you are are our glory and our joy. You want to increase the joy in your life? Go out and lead someone to Jesus. Walk with them through the mire of their own junk and love them anyway. Walk with them through the mire of their own junk and invite them to church. Invite them to your communitas group. Just hang out with them. Say, hey, can I pray with you about that? Hey, I don't pray. I'm not a prayer. Let me pray. Let's just pray together. I'll, I'll do all the prayer. Start tearing down that wall and watch your joy increase as their faith grows. You start investing in others. You start seeing people differently. It'll change the joy factor in your life. Again, just one more football uh, illustration as we're getting it, getting ready to go into football season. Uh, Deion Sanders, uh, I'm kind of a recovering Dallas Cowboy fan, used to love it back in the days. And um, Deion Sanders became a cowboy and he all-star, uh, uh, all-pro, excuse me, uh, uh, Hall of Famer, played baseball. I mean, he was just an all-around athlete, incredible. At the end of his career, he became a follower of Christ. I don't know if you know that. And he made this statement, and I think it's so descriptive of what it's like to lead someone to Christ. No touchdown, no home run, no stolen base, no tackle, no interception could compare to me leading someone to Christ. Nothing comes close. Also, when you learn to value others, instead of seeing them as, as a means to an end, instead of seeing them as an object, instead of using people to get things, and you start seeing them as valuable part of God's economy, that they're literally become, as, as Paul said here, you are my crown, you're, you're the prize. You're everything I'm living for. Is your faith becoming a faith with Christ. That's a beautiful perspective on life. Paradigm shift here. Now that annoying family member who drops the F-bombs on you, who just loves to see you get upset when they throw a a few GDs in there. And you love them anyway. And you embrace them anyway. And and they take two steps closer to their their walk with God. That's a beautiful thing. You start valuing people for who they are. These people are about to be baptized. Every one of them have a God story. In fact, those who are getting baptized right now, if you'll get up and go out that door right now and get ready and get in line because you're the courageous ones today and we're going to give you applause as you get up right now. Go. Give them a hand. And there's people in this room who when they get to heaven, you're their crown. You are the the one that they're going to present to Jesus on that day. That beautiful day we have in fact, I want you to read a few verses with me as they as they walk out proverbs eleven thirty he who wins souls say read, read it with me, okay, ready he who wins souls is wise daniel twelve three those who are wise will shine like the brightness of heaven, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. notice wisdom. And soul winning go hand in hand. Notice that crossing bridges and building bridges instead of walls and separations and you're unholy and I'm holy, but we're literally building bridges. Notice a person like that, that's a person who's wise. That's a person who really understands and sees things as they are. Big picture thinkers also seeing the people in who they are. So over over this series, we've talked about several things. We're going to run my faith with intentional intensity. I'm going to run my faith with substantive significance. I'm going to run my faith with an enduring perseverance. Each one of those has a message tied behind it. Each one of those has a crown reference tied to it. I want you to hear today. We're going to run our faith valuing the internal destiny of every soul. Everyone in this room has a soul. Everyone outside of this room has a soul. Everyone who loves Jesus has a soul. Everyone who hates Jesus has a soul. Everyone who has not had the chance to hear of Jesus has a soul. And every soul matters. I don't know what heaven's going to be like. Nobody does. John tried to write about it in Revelation and he had to use so many imageries we still to this day can't figure out uh, some of the imagery that he uses in it. But there's a reference in Revelation chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. And there's something that's going to happen with these crowns. And I've saved it all, the whole series to come to this moment to talk about this verse because so I don't know if these crowns are going to be literal or if they're going to be metaphoric, if it's just merely a representation. But what's going to happen with this crown idea, this righteous crown, this crown of life, this, this incorruptible crowns? And then now we talk about this crown of exaltation or this crown of the individual. What is that going to be? Are we going to have literal crowns in our hands? I don't necessarily think so, but I'm not going to be against that uh, by all. But at the end of the day, I think what really it's going to be is notice this, the 24 elders will fall down before him, sits on the throne, and will worship him. That's what heaven's going to be, falling down and worshiping him, who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne. I really believe when we get to heaven, one of the greatest gifts that we're going to be able to give Jesus, be able to give our Father, are the people that we brought with us. The people that we've invested in are the people that we've loved are the people that we brought to Jesus. You know, sometimes, again, it's it's a community thing. Sometimes it's a family thing. We're all, are you about bringing people to Jesus? I first heard a poem and found out later on it was a hymn was sung a lot of years ago. And there was just one refrain. Charles Luther was a, was, a, uh, was a journalist, and he heard of a young boy who was terminally ill and was about to die, but yet the boy became a believer in Christ. And yet he said, I can't die. I have nothing to take my Savior. He hadn't had a chance to share the faith with anybody. He was too sick, became a believer. Hadn't had a chance to share the faith with anybody. So sunk into Charles Luther as he goes home and he writes a hymn that many people to this day sing it in their church. I just know the refrain. I just know the chorus. Must I go in empty-handed? Must I meet my Savior's soul? Not with which one's soul to greet Him. Must I empty-handed go? I don't want to show up to the party of heaven without any soul that I brought to Him. Who will you bring to Jesus as your crown to present to him? Who do you know right now who is without God that you're going to pray, you're going to seek, you're going to lo- reach out to, you're going to build a bridge to and pray that they come to faith in Christ? I close with one story. If you've ever lived in a small town, you'll understand this. I pastored a couple of small towns that totally get this story and believe it to be true. It was in a Texas town, small community, where there was a particular family that everyone knew in the family as they were the town drunks. They lived from paycheck to paycheck and they spent all their paycheck on the front end for as much alcohol as they could buy and then they would buy a little bit of food, a little bit of clothes, and a little bit to get by on. Then the next paycheck along, same thing, as much alcohol as they could buy. Well, they had a boy one time And literally the town nicknamed him Born Drunk. Everyone knew him as Born Drunk in this small little Texas town. Born Drunk. He got used to it externally, but you know subconsciously it was eating at him. But Born Drunk because he wasn't from a wealthy family or he didn't have all the nice clothes. He wasn't the smartest kid in the class and he sometimes smelt a little funny. Nobody really hung out with Born Drunk. But there was a little boy in his same class who had the perspective, the big picture, who valued people. His name was Jimmy. Jimmy befriended Born Drunk. Started inviting him over to his house to play. Started inviting him to the vacation Bible school. Started inviting him to the parties as they got older. what are you doing hanging out with Born Drunk? Nobody hangs out with Born Drunk. And uh, one day, Jimmy started going, started inviting Born Drunk to church with him. Born Drunk came, and of course he got Kool Aid and he got cookies and he enjoyed all that kind of stuff. But there was one day in a small country church. Born Drunk got up whenever the pastor gave a invitation time. He came down to the front, took the preacher by the hand, and he said, "I, I, 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 I want to be like. I want to be like." And the preacher tried to finish his sentence. You want to be like Jesus? He said, I don't know who Jesus is, but I know who Jimmy is. I want to be like Jimmy. I say all that to say, there's a lot of people in this world who don't know who Jesus is, but they know who you are. They know who you are. And if you would live Jesus, they'll want to be like you. They'll want to be like Jesus. And you never know that you, that, 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 that other born drunk may be the next person who will be your crown in heaven, who will be something that you can present to Jesus, somebody you can present to Jesus one day. We're going to go into a, a time of baptism. But I give a challenge every time we do it to get off of easy street, if you will, today. And maybe for some of you all, you think I've been, just been coasting along here. I'm a follower of Christ, but I have never been baptized get off of Easy Street and go home wet. That's pretty much the invitation. Get off of Easy Street and go home wet. All right, we'll give you a towel. You've got to bring the towel back. We'll give you a shirt. You can keep the shirt. But other than that, go home wet. Profess your faith in Christ today. Also give another challenge because some of you in this room may be like the little 16-year-old girl in our first service. So I gave the same challenge. And I said, some of y'all need to give your life to Jesus. You've never given your life to Jesus before. You've just been hanging out at the church, and you're ready to give your life to Jesus. She met me in the back, and we prayed together, and she went home wet. Here's the point. If you're ready to give your life to Jesus, if you're ready to be baptized and you didn't come ready, you meet me on the other side of that door right there, and we'll talk.